0: This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today, we'll be talking with John Goldstein about sustainable finance and a big announcement that Goldman Sachs has just made in that space. But before that, we're going to try out something new and different. We're going to give you a quick update on the markets from one of our trading floor experts, We're joined today by Amelia Garnett from the Goldman Sachs Securities Division, who's going to be telling us about five numbers she's watching in the markets this week. Amelia, welcome. Thank you. So, before we jump in, give a quick overview of what you focus on and who your main clients are.
1: Sure. So, I sit in the Cross Asset Sales Group in New York, and I predominantly cover equity and credit hedge funds for macro products. So I'm mainly focused on currency markets and rates.
0: Okay, so what's the big number in markets that you've been looking at?
1: 10.5, which is the number of trading sessions we have left this year. There's not much hard data left to be released and so i'm going to focus on something slightly more structural which is liquidity into year end so locally markets have been very focused on the regulatory requirements for banks to keep dollars on their balance sheet over year end and that has been affecting funding markets so we've seen cross currency basis widen out and we've seen clients ask questions and raise some concerns That's been compounded by the fact that some competitors and market commentators have been flagging the risks into year-end we would actually argue that those risks are overstated um, and that banks have been particularly proactive in fact in managing liquidity into this event and as we saw from fed chair powell's conference last week he is monitoring these risks and he remains ready to act but they're not concerned right now so i think this is something that is less of a risk and from my perspective and looking at the activity from my client franchise, our clients have been very proactive as well at rolling their FX forwards ahead of year-end to avoid having to transact in illiquid markets.
0: So what, what number do you feel has been getting a lot of attention but doesn't really tell us all that we need to know?
1: The odds of a Senator Warren Democratic nomination, which is frankly a moving target at the moment. And so why do we care? Market participants agree that the US election is the big event for 2020. And when we saw Senator Warren's support increase a few months ago, we saw a rapid flurry of interest from our client base to hedge the more progressive agendas. So specifically, we saw interest to own options in the March and November expiries, so covering the primaries and the election itself, to protect against S&P weakness and also to protect against sectors and specific stocks that would really underperform in an environment of this progressive reform. Elsewhere, we also saw clients' position for a weaker dollar on the view that the Fed might have to cut interest rates, which would lead to dollar underperformance, particularly against the yen, which is viewed as a safe haven asset. And elsewhere, we've seen interest to buy calls on natural gas in the face of proposed energy reform. So ultimately, we need to know who the Democratic candidate is. And the quicker we know that, the better it will be for the investing environment.
0: So uh, has there been a number that's moved a lot, or maybe not at all, that's really caught your eye?
1: So 20%, which is actually Goldman Research's assigned probability for a recession in the next 12 months. Now, if you compare that to the 33%, which the broader market assigns, we are definitely on the lower end. And we are for three reasons. The first is... We think that the private sector is in a very strong financial condition, so households and businesses are in a strong position. We also believe that U.S. consumers are strong, you know, we're seeing job growth, we're seeing high consumer confidence and we're seeing rising incomes. And the risks are dissipating, I mean, central banks have proven that they're going to be reactive in cutting interest rates and, you know, hopefully the Brexit fears and the China fears are going away. That said, the economy is in its 11th year of economic expansion. That's the longest in history. And so it naturally causes clients to consider the downside risks, which has a big bearing on risk appetite and willingness to deploy fresh capital. So in summary, we've continued to see clients add to risk, but they're taking advantage of low implied volatility to put in hedges where necessary.
0: What number are you thinking about for the future?
1: Gini coefficients globally, which provide long-term indicators of inequality. And why I think that's important is we've seen a rise in support for the political extremes all around the globe in the last few years. And clearly this is a complicated issue, but it's driven in part by anger over the multi-year rise in inequality, both social and economic, and has been accentuated by technology and social media that have really made this inequality come to life for many people. And so I really expect this to remain a big focus for our clients and investors, both economically and socially.
0: Great, so I used to work for a boss who loved the Gini coefficient, it was his favorite metric. Let's wrap up with something non-financial. What's the number on your mind as we enter this holiday season?
1: 3,459, which is the miles in between my office in New York and my home in London. I'm headed there for the holiday season. And I, I actually used to work in the London and Sydney offices with Goldman uh, before New York, and so it'd be great to go back.
0: Thank you very much, Amelia, and have a great holiday. Thanks a lot. Now onto the sustainable finance portion of the episode. So Goldman Sachs just made a big announcement on the firm's sustainable goals over the next 10 years. To talk about that and respond to some skeptics in the space, we're joined by John Goldstein, head of Goldman Sachs Sustainable Finance Group, which is responsible for working across the firm to deepen our knowledge and grow our capabilities in relation to inclusive growth and climate transition. John, welcome to the program.
2: Thanks for having me back, Jake.
0: Before we begin, why don't you explain a little bit of what we just announced and how it came to be? Yeah.
2: So the announcement had two core elements. The first is that we're making a commitment to invest or finance $750 billion of capital over the next 10 years across the two broad themes that we're seeing unfolding in the economy and nine specific themes within those. So the two broad themes are climate transition and inclusive growth. And underneath those, under climate transition, we see things that you'd expect to see, like clean energy, and things that you might not expect as much around things like waste and materials, ecosystem services. Inclusive growth looks at, frankly, how do we have growth that works better for more people? Things like accessible, affordable education, uh, accessible, affordable health care, investing in our communities.
0: So that's a financial target and a group of investment financing areas. How is it going to be built into Goldman's business?
2: Jake, you're hitting on, I think, what's one of the things that's really important. And I think the $750 billion may get a lot of attention as a headline number, but I think arguably this may be more significant over time, which is, Seeing these as two core secular trends that will affect the economy, our clients, and our business, that means we need to invest in the capabilities to be as strong, excellent, and capable around these as we would any other central topic, which could be technology, interest rates, any other thing of that kind of significance. And so the other commitment is that we're working to integrate expertise, capability, and delivery of that across our products and services across the divisions of the business so that any client can knock on our door and get the same expertise insight and help on these issues that they could expect on any of the other central issues that are top of mind
0: for them a lot of people have talked about sustainable finance for a long time it's not a new phrase what's different about today's announcement that Goldman just made
2: there are three main things that make this a little different cuz to your point there are announcements and numbers and targets left, right, and center my news feed is full of them. And so, you know, as you know here, we don't like to do things unless we believe in them. They make sense and they're additive. And so there are three things that meet those criteria. Number one, where this is coming from. This is grounded, frankly, not in a commitment to something outside of us. This is grounded in a core view of where the world is going, a thesis, a research-driven view, almost a market call that fundamentally these questions of climate transition and inclusive growth are going to be central, secular themes for the economy, for our clients, and for ourselves. This is where the world is going. We sit at the center of markets. We see it, but we need to be ahead of that. We need to lean into that with the full muscle of our firm. This is not a peripheral target. This is not off to the side. This is fundamentally central. That's number one, grounded in this core research-driven thesis of where the world is going. Two, partially because its form is a little different, We've had environmental targets. This is not just an environmental target. Back in 2005, when we first really talked about the scientific consensus on climate change, we had our first environmental target. There are lots of those targets out there. This is actually about these twin themes around inclusive growth and climate transition. It's holistic across nine core growth themes we can talk a little bit more about. But I think its form is a little bit different. And those nine growth themes, this, frankly, is not focused on an external objective. It's not the UNSDGs. It's not one of the frameworks that's out there in the broad world. This is based on our own research over decades of work, working with our colleagues. And so that second point of it's not siloed, it's holistic across these set of research-driven themes. The third thing, and people are going to probably comment on the size, $750 billion. It's a big number. It's probably the biggest target out there. But I would argue that the third thing is most important and maybe the least noticed, but I think over time it's really going to pay off, is The focus is not on the $750 billion. The focus is on being excellent at this, having the expertise, the capabilities, and delivering to clients across the firm, across our divisions, across our products and services to truly have the excellence at helping clients navigate this and navigating with their own capital. That focus on having excellence in these core themes, the $750 billion will almost logically follow from that. If we're right about our view of where the world is going and we execute well on the desire to be best in class at this. The $750 billion, it's not chump change, so I don't want to make it seem like an afterthought. But really, you know, at the end of the day, that will be a result of executing well against this opportunity, not really an end unto itself.
0: Why does it make sense to do this right now? Obviously, you said Goldman's had environmental targets in the past, and we've met those and raised them. Why does it make sense to broaden the scope now yeah. of our ambition and to aim higher?
2: really we're seeing two things and you know even talking to senior leaders around the firm what's emerged is number one the urgency of some of these issues is at a fundamentally different place than it's been, and whether it's physical climate risk and what we're seeing in terms of 80% more extreme precipitation days than we had two decades ago. I live in Northern California, and whether it's the power outages there and the fact that half my neighbors can't get property and casualty insurance, sort of the growing urgency around that, as well as social issues we see percolating up around the world. So it's very top of mind, it's very present, the urgency of these issues. That alone, frankly, would be important, but arguably not enough for what we're looking at doing is leaning our full muscle into these issues. What's also changed is the business case is fundamentally better than it's ever been. If you look at the cost of renewables relative to other types of power, fundamentally different. If you look at the economics of serving unserved markets, trying to really focus not just in addition to providing better care, but better health. If you look at all of these issues, fundamentally it's not just the urgency, but it's the opportunity. The business case is better than ever. And it's coming from a wide variety of angles. People talk a lot about millennials want to invest differently. That's true, I think on the last podcast, I jokingly said 127% of millennials want to invest with an ESG lens. That may have risen to 134% at this point. But what people are missing are other angles of this. Employees. You know, I was talking to the CFO of a large company the other day, and they said, look, my number one, two, and three ESG issues are if I can't show a young, talented mobile workforce that could pick from a litter of great employment opportunities, if I can't show them what we do is important to the world and we do it in a values-oriented way, they're not going to come work here. Employees are engaging with their companies in a fundamentally different way around this. Policymakers, the way they're getting in the game, look at the European sustainable finance taxonomy. You know, Look at China from a policy perspective deciding they don't want our plastic waste. China's imports of plastic waste have declined by over 95% in three years. You have governments getting in the game. Asset owners, you have asset owners coming together individually and collectively in groups like the Climate Action 100+ really saying look we see the world moving in a direction and we want to use our power influence our dollars in a different way companies companies themselves accounted for over a quarter of the new renewable power generation last year companies are getting in the game in a different way not just for themselves but even up and down their supply chain working whether it's on sustainability goals community engagement goals diversity goals and so i think the time is fundamentally different because the urgency is real and visible and really in our faces in a fundamentally different way than it has been But frankly, without the fact that the business case is now there in a different way, I don't think we'd be able to make the same kind of commitment.
0: So sometimes we talk about these trends in the abstract, but it always is helpful to focus on the personal. Talk a little bit about the way you see it through your own lens. Your transition here at the firm Mm. has sort of reflected some of these changes. So talk about what you originally came here to do and what you're doing today.
2: I think I'm an unexpected and an unlikely case study in all of this. I sometimes call myself the Forrest Gump of impact investing. Back in 2007, I co-founded Imprint Capital along with Taylor Jordan. We didn't even know we were starting a business. We knew we had a small set of clients that wanted to take all these ideas. And this field has always had a lot of ideas. It hasn't always had execution. And our focus was not on aspiration. It was on execution. Let's work with clients. Let's see if we can roll up our sleeves and implement these ideas. How do I align portfolios with where the world is going? And do it in a way that passed muster from a financial perspective, but also from an impact perspective. Our little two-person company slowly grew to we were a little 15-person company. We managed about $550 million in assets. We'd worked with a lot of large U.S. foundations. So our little company focused on really just understanding this emerging world, started getting hired by financial institutions. Started spending a lot more time in New York with people that dressed a little better than I did. Goldman Sachs got to know us through some work. We thought they were going to become another client. Very smart, asked really good questions. We were excited, but came back instead of sending us our signed contract with the rather surprising question of, we have this wacky idea and wondered what you might think about it, but what if we were to buy you? So I was having my first cup of morning coffee. I'd just gotten packed from a week living out of the back of a camper van with my family on the Lost Coast of California. And instead of doing a coffee spit take, I just said, I'd love to hear more about your thinking. (laughs) And the answer in some ways is emblematic of where we are now. You know, the answer was, look, this is now important as an investor for our clients, which means we need to be excellent. And at that point they said, "We're fine. We have lots of good pockets of work, but if we want to get from fine to excellent, we really got to ramp up our efforts. We need to invest in this in, in a very muscular robust way." Then as things grew, what we found is this organization is very nimble and very dynamic. And so as we started working really on three things. Number one, how do our core investors get better at doing this as part of their day job? ESG is not for clients who care about ESG. ESG, Environmental Social Governance, is for clients who care about risk-adjusted returns, and that's all clients. So how do we weave that into our core products? How do we partner with clients that want something a little more, that wanna lean into this from a research perspective, figure out not just what today's practice is, but next practice? That's really our kind of shared RNG agenda. And how do we talk to clients differently? not to show up with a product or pitch, but to say, how can we help you? We can talk across asset classes, publics to privates, equity to debt, impact to ESG. We work with global insurers, sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, foundations, family offices. We both work with our own investors and we allocate to other investors who don't carry Goldman Sachs business cards to be able to take that perspective and say, how can we help? So that worked pretty well, both in a sign of that being a good model and of where the world is going. At the end of 2015, the year of the acquisition, we had $3 billion under management. 2016, it was a little over six billion, 2017, a little over 11, 2018, a little over 17, and now it's about 55 billion dollars in dedicated and impact assets. So continued growth and a sign that we were sort of onto something in terms of that model. People say, "Do you have a separate group doing this, or do you integrate it?" And we said yes. We called it a both-and model, which is if you tell an existing talented staff to add something to their day job, that's unrealistic. On the other hand, if you have it totally divorced from the business, that's irrelevant. So how do you have the extra oomph of resources, focus, and specialization, but the goal to draw it from and weave it into the businesses, not to separate? So that model worked well. So at the same time, these questions were coming up all over. Our largest clients around the world were constantly bringing this up as a top of mind issue, not just for investment management, but for securities, for investment banking. It was coming up in investments our merchant bank was making. And the question is what to do about it. In some ways, at the end of the day, the goal is let's focus on content, knowledge, and expertise. Let's not focus on products. Let's not focus on announcements. Let's not focus on marketing. Let's really focus on what we need to do, which is really three things. And you mentioned this at the beginning. Number one, let's have the expertise and knowledge. And if it exists somewhere in these metaphorical four walls, let's find it and put it together. If it doesn't, let's go get it. Let's have expertise on the things that matter. Number two, let's have capabilities to do something with that knowledge. It's all well and good to know something, but we need to be able to do something. Number three, let's deliver that to clients in a coherent, cohesive way. And if we do that, hopefully that will create a cycle that perpetuates itself. If you do good work, you'll become known for it, which means you earn the right to do more good work. But I think... This experience of having a little 15-person company running a large growing unit within Goldman Sachs and now really getting to sort of drink from the fire hose, Goldman Sachs sits at the center of markets and looking out across corporate executives, asset owners, asset managers, policymakers, that view is both inspiring in terms of the engagement and the momentum around this, but daunting. I mean, there's a lot of work to do. There's a lot of wood to chop.
0: One knock, and it's not insignificant on sustainable finance, is that it really is just giving a name to something that's going to happen anyway, and you're trying to get some credit for something that you're already doing in your business. And if this makes business sense, just do it and don't take credit for it. How do you answer the criticism that we're not adding anything here?
2: Yeah. We spent a lot of time thinking about this, and this is where having a core of clients that are passionate about these issues, asking a lot of questions, helps give us a real perspective on how to answer it with real authenticity and depth. Because first of all, It's not bad if it's good business, right? At the end of the day, this isn't going to go very far, very fast if it's not good business, if the business case doesn't work out. However, what do we bring to bear? What we bring to bear is the combination of a couple things. That view that this is where the world is going, which means we can justify leaning into this. I like to say this work is all about getting the right degree of lean. If you stand straight up and down and just execute what's in front of you, you're not going to be doing anything very interesting. You're not going to generate comparative advantage. You're not going to be particularly helpful to the clients or the world. You lean too far forward with enthusiasm, you're gonna make mistakes fall down and you're gonna create the next cautionary tale. So getting that right degree of lean. So what's different? Where can we simultaneously do something that's good business for our clients and for ourselves, but make a difference? And I'd say there are really four main areas where this shows up. It's, you know, what are we bringing to the table? Number one, sometimes it's innovation. Sometimes it's not just executing a transaction that's out there, it's what's the transaction of tomorrow? So this SDG-linked bond we did with the Italian utility L is a really great example of that, which is green bonds have been a good growing market It's good, but it has some complexity of issuance. You have to cordon off the proceeds, and it's a little more tied to inputs in terms of money going in as opposed to outputs, the results. So our team worked with Anel and others to really come up with what is a more aligned, accountable structure that helps them accomplish what they really want to accomplish, which is raise capital directly aligned with their business goals of transitioning the fundamental core of their business towards renewables. And so the way the security works is general corporate use of proceeds, easy to issue, easy to issue at scale, affordable capital to finance their business, but it's accountable. It has teeth, which is if they don't reach their goals of 55% renewable power by the end of 2021, their interest rate ratchets up by a quarter of a percent. And so that ability to go out to the market, raise billions of dollars of capital, Get a little bit of a price break from the market because seeing that target, seeing that objective, but having that accountability on the back end. Because one of the big issues here is this isn't just about investing in these nine growing themes. This is about transitioning an entire economy. That transition needs to be banked and it needs the innovation and the creativity that bankers can bring to it. So one thing we can bring is that's a good investment. It's good for the company. It's good for investors. So back to does it pencil? It absolutely pencils. What do we bring to the table? Ingenuity and sweat. I think the second thing there is foresight, seeing something just a little bit before it's there. So our merchant bank saw a tremendously growing opportunity in solar power in India, and they invested in a very small team, Renewal Power, when they had zero megawatts of power in the ground.
0: Just an idea.
2: Just an idea. Now they have over six gigawatts of power, or the largest solar developer in India, and have raised over a billion and a half dollars. That ability to sort of see where this is going, see the direction of travel and invest early but frankly, with some real heft and real scale. That's number two. Number three, I'd like to call it is just sweat. This ability to sort of be a little more creative and put some work into putting the building blocks together. So a merchant bank worked with a company called Northvolt to finance the gigafactory in Europe. Ultimately, to bring down the cost of electric vehicles, ultimately it comes down to batteries. Batteries, you need scale. We have a chicken and egg problem. Until costs are lower and I have the volume of demand, how can I build them at the scale that makes it all work? And so we worked with Volkswagen and others to figure out, is there someone that's going to buy these batteries? Is there someone who's going to make it? It suddenly takes something and makes it financeable. And it's something that, financeable that needs to be financed at scale. This gets back to the last rule. There's some areas in impact where small is beautiful. We need nimbleness, innovation, and very sort of small efforts. And there's a lot of wonderful work going out there that's going to continue to go on. One of the things we think about is where does our scale not just matter, but where is it required? That type of transaction needs scale to get there. The same thing in middle market renewable power. At the end of the day, Corporations in the U.S. want to get on-site renewable power. They want highly flexible energy resources, but they want someone that has some scale and heft that's going to be around for a while. So we went, saw a thesis, saw an opportunity, and built about a 30-person team, about a $2 billion balance sheet, and in less than three years have become one of the, if not the largest, owner of distributed solar assets in the U.S. That's a market where people need scale. They need heft. And so that question of if it's good business, what are you bring to the table is a very fair one and a good one, and frankly, one that doesn't get asked enough. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about, where are we bringing somebody to the table? And frankly, that also is an advantage. How do we get interesting transactions that not everybody may have seen? It's you put in the sweat, you put in the work.
0: We obviously here at Goldman have clients that aren't in these nine themes as broad as they are that you outlined. And some of them may seem to be pulling in a different direction, depending on the theme. What about those kinds of clients, legacy clients, as it were? Mm
2: -hmm. At the end of the day, and we've spent a lot of time since the launch of SFG talking to clients across a wide variety of sectors, and interesting seeing who wants to talk to us. Frankly, the corporate clients most interested in getting our guidance, our help, our advice, are from a lot of those legacy sectors. Because this question of transition, this isn't just about the pure plays, creating new innovative solutions. Unbelievably important, we do a lot of that. But this is about broad bases of the economy driving to really important goals in terms of climate transition and inclusive growth. That's an area where we're really going to have to earn our keep is helping those companies that have a legacy business, have a business model, but they're getting these same questions. They're getting pressures from shareholders, from customers, from employees, from stakeholders. And what they want is they want advice. They want help. They want people to help them navigate that transition because rapid growth of renewable power creates opportunities in the renewable power space. it creates. Opportunities to save money for some companies, and it creates risks for some business models. This idea of all of these drivers, their opportunities for some people, their risks for others, and their efficiency gains for others, leveraging these as tools are important to all of our clients. That's one of the things that often gets missed out, is once again, people think about this as a segmented little field. It's just off here in the corner. These are broad, large chunks of our economy that are fundamentally changing in the decades ahead. And once again, those changes need a banker, they need an investor, they need an advisor.
0: I couldn't agree more. I saw the chairman of a big traditional oil company in Europe and they were 100% focused on these transitional issues. What about data? One of the issues for this world has been that the early metrics and definitions weren't that robust. They were very bespoke and they changed depending on where you were and what they looked like. It's a little soft sometimes, the measures. How is that evolving and how is that going to improve so that we can really see the accountability and delivering on some of the promises that have been made?
2: If I knew more about hockey, I would probably say we're in the middle of the second period of a three-period game. Early on, this was a topic that was of interest, but frankly, people didn't really have to address it. It seemed peripheral, sort of ESG, what are you doing? How do I measure it? How's my portfolio look? How's my company perform? That time is over. Everyone needs an ESG story and an ESG answer. That has increasingly become apparent. However, what's happened is in some cases, people have really focused on solving for having an answer versus solving for the real investment question. The investment question is, how do I navigate a world that's changing, whether I'm a corporate leader, I'm an asset owner, or an asset manager? That's the real question. And as with any investment question, it's hard. It takes work, it takes scrutiny, it takes perception, it takes insight, it takes wisdom. However, I think an enthusiasm to solve for the labeling question has almost resulted in a little bit of a potential cul-de-sac here, where a lot of work put into, how do I put a stamp on something that says it's ESG? And I think you mentioned some of the issues. This is sort of well, well studied. I think sometimes these are a little overly dependent on formalisms around policies and disclosures versus performance. And there's a proliferation. When I talk to people across the spectrum, nobody is happy with the current state of affairs, which is companies feel like they're beset by many people on all sides with more requests for more things that arguably don't matter a lot. Investors are overwhelmed with a whole lot of noise and not a lot of signal and don't know quite what to do with it. Here's the question. How do we get to a world that I think would be better for everyone—a world where we have better data on fewer things that matter more? I think everyone would agree that's a better place to be. The question is, how do we get there? And I think this is something we've been taking an active focus in and, and really pushing on this where we can. We were the first U.S. bank to report using SASB, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board. That's really SASB's mission: is how do we figure out what's financially material. Not for all companies, sector by sector, subsector by subsector, and try to drive a recognition of what those things are and coherent reporting around those things. GCM, when we engage, we just published our annual engagement report, we really push for better disclosure on fewer things that matter more. Our GS sustained research colleagues have done a great job at really trying to hone in on what are the things that matter for their sectors. And so I think it's something we see where the world is going and we're trying to help it get there because at the end of the day, capital markets work better with good data. More data is not necessarily better. What we need is better data on fewer things that matter more. And I think that helps overcome these issues where if we solve for the investment question, arming good investors with better data who may make different choices, but they can have transparency and really a common framework from which to work, that makes sense. The kind of cul-de-sac choices that's been made, I think, is when you solve for the label, sometimes that becomes the answer. And the metaphor we use is if you were doing due diligence on a fixed income manager, and you asked how they decide what securities to buy, and they said... I read a rating agency report. You'd say, and? It's great to use external inputs, but those are inputs. Those are not answers. The same thing is true here, which is it's great to buy external data, other reports, other research buyers, but if this is important, if this is material, if this is part of how you were a good steward of assets, you need to have your own story to tell in a fact-based way. And I think just saying, "Ah, I just relied on someone else is increasingly not going to be a sufficient answer.
0: Another question that comes up a lot around this field is that by screening off certain areas or by limiting your investments to nine objectives or, or fields or areas, you're somehow limiting the universe of potential yeah. investments and in that you're leaving some upside for the investor. So, by limiting or focusing your investments, is there some chance that you're shortchanging your yeah. investors?
2: Two main things on this. I think number one, I would be curious to find the investor who looks at every single security on the face of the planet you got to focus somewhere, right? You have to make choices, arguably, where you can build a research edge, an inside edge. you got to pick somewhere you're going to focus that you think your focus is going to bear fruit. So I think there's a little bit of a myth of the people who seamlessly choose from every potential security every single moment in time. I'm not sure I've quite found that person or maybe that computer. However, I think the other big thing here, and it dovetails to a deeper issue, is historically, Limiting the universe was kind of all there was in this space. Early efforts, faith-based negative screening, socially responsible investing, the idea of kind of what not to own. And that has become so ingrained in people's head of what this is. I remember a colleague and I were being interviewed by a journalist once. And at one point, they said, I just don't understand with ESG, how can you expect an investor to perform with one hand tied behind her back? And my colleague responded at the moment. She said, actually, we'd like to think of it as having a third hand. For us, finding big attractive growth sectors other sources of insight into risk that's going to affect almost all companies, opportunity, ways to be more efficient, that makes sense to us. And I think there's a little bit of an old way of thinking of take a universe, take a hatchet, remove some names, and just get back to your job. That's not what this really is. It's rooted in this old view. But I think there is this bigger issue of, I like to say I'm in the cognitive bias business. And what I mean by that is often people are too prone to love this or too prone to hate it. Enthusiasts think this is important. It's the greatest thing since sliced organic whole wheat artisanal bread. Sprinkle it on top of anything and it'll drive alpha, right, in outperformance. Others think that you are irreducibly dooming yourself to failure. And I think a lot of people persist in really, frankly, those beliefs. Those are not research-held views or experience-held views. Those are really beliefs and almost philosophy. When you get to the investing question, you get past that. We spend a lot of time telling people, we understand there may have been hype, enthusiasm, good news, bad news in the past. Frankly, we'll acknowledge that, but let's move on. Let's look at the actual investment merits of this question. And when you get into it, what I invariably find, I don't think I have found a single investor yet we've worked with that the more we talk about this doesn't have one little moment of, oh, I didn't know that was ESG. So we were talking to a manager that said, we don't do an ESG. We said, well, what do you do? And they said the largest area of active risk was investing in middle market European industrial companies, because what they found is that a lot of them had outdated manufacturing, a little bit of capex to modernize their manufacturing could make it much more efficient, save energy, save water, less waste. And it turns out if they marketed those efficiency traits in small business and consumer markets in Northern Europe, they could command a small price premium. So they got kind of a double whammy benefit to their margins. And I sort of said, you know, in our world, you might call that greening manufacturing companies. And they said, well, we don't. And I think there is this hangover of thinking, you know, this is what the well-intentioned people trying to learn Excel are asking me to do. This is not a real investment discipline. And sort of undoing that cognitive bias, people often realize they're doing a lot more of it than what usually follows. Oh, but that's just smart investing. And eventually, in a lot of conversations, I'd say, you're not allowed to say anything that smart investing doesn't count. You can't define the tautology against me. Yeah.
0: You talk to a lot of smart investors all over the world, in Europe, Asia, the US, elsewhere. What's one big question, or is there one big question that you're getting from those investors about this space? It all comes
2: down to forms of really one question. What do I do? Awareness is high. Interest is high. Appreciation for the potential importance is high. But I think it can be a little overwhelming, a little paralyzing. Think about climate risk. Between physical change, policy change, market change, there'll be significant impacts across a wide variety of assets in the decades to come. However. Which of those things will happen when, where, how, and how does that relate to current market pricing is a difficult question. So how do you balance an appreciation for the significance of a problem, an understanding of its complexity, and find a way to roll up your sleeves and get started? I mean, earlier today, I was talking to someone at a large sovereign wealth fund. That's what they're wrestling with. We know it's going to be big. We know it matters. We know it's going to affect a lot of things, but I got to have a way to get started. So a lot of our work Is spent really doing a couple things. Number one, clear the underbrush. If there's this ideological underbrush that either makes people too apt to love it or hate it, let's get that out of the way. Let's have an investing conversation, number one. Number two, let's ground it in a thesis. The thesis for us is simple. All of these tools are really only useful to the degree they do some combination of three things. Is this a way to manage risk? Is this a way to find growth opportunities that may not be fully appreciated by the market? or is it a way to drive operational efficiency and resilience? So have a thesis of what are the levers I can use to try to drive value in my portfolio over time, number two. Number three, find actionable ways to get started. Find these ways to take measured experiments. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. It doesn't need to be the whole portfolio, but find a way to get started. And then finally four, reflect and iterate, both on your own experience and how the field is developing. So the question in some ways is always the same, really some variation of, okay, this all makes sense, but how do I get started? And the process at a generic level is the same. Clear the underbrush, have a clear thesis, find an entry point, and evolve over time. But it manifests itself quite differently in these different institutions.
0: So they're practical, and they just want to get on with it at some level. John, you've covered a lot of ground. Is there a particular area that we haven't discussed that you're excited about over the next 12 to 18 months?
2: One thing that I've been really excited about, and this is partially a lens that gave rise to what I do and partially an engine for carrying it forward, is You've talked and heard about other folks here talking about this sort of one Goldman Sachs idea. Clients shouldn't have to get a PhD in Goldman Sachs to get the benefits of our best thinking. This is a topic that has been extremely conducive to that. Is sitting down with large clients and saying, how can we help? This is a top of mind issue. How can we help? And it doesn't matter which division, which function, which product, which service, which anything. What do you need? But what we found is there's been a high level of engagement with these clients. And what emerges from it is usually a work plan. We'll go through the range of conversations and issues say, yes, that one, no, that one, tell me more about this, and here too, you haven't mentioned. And we'll effectively have a work plan that we project manage, this ability to help clients project manage across these important issues and transitions with the variety of functions and capabilities we have a firm doing. I mean, I was talking to a senior executive at a large company the other day, we went through a range of topics and a range of issues. And just one example, they said, you know, we're really excited about moving to much more sustainable packaging. We have a great supplier, we'll buy everything they make, but they really need financing to build a plan. Is there a way you can help? Earlier that day, I had a conversation with our merchant bank who wanted to share research on seeing alternative packaging as a really exciting growth area. They've made some investments and they want to make more. Separately, this idea of using corporate offtakes to make transactions financeable and financeable at scale. I talked about Northvolt earlier. That's the way our U.S. Renewable Power Group works, sort of harnessing the power of the corporate offtaker. And so to get to sit down and connect those dots, the client doesn't necessarily need to know all those different things going on, but we do. And to be able to sit down, understand their need, and bring that together. And that's a microcosm. But I think we found with some of these clients, we have five, six, even seven different sustainable finance work streams going on that cover a range of issues. And that ability to take what can feel like a fragmented approach when people are very, very busy and make it coherent and project managed, I think, really helping folks really move forward in their organizations and accomplish their goals.
0: Well That's great. On that optimistic note, we'll wrap things up. Thanks for joining us, John. Thanks so much, Jake. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. And for more from Goldman Sachs experts, as well as influential policymakers, academics, and investors on market-moving topics, be sure to check out our new podcast, Top of Mind at Goldman Sachs, hosted by Allison Nathan, a senior strategist in the firm's research division. Thank you.